parking in Bitterman Circle for July 13th, 2020, number 48. Hi there. It's Aaron. Welcome to Parking in Betterman Circle. Today we have a real treat. We're going to be talking with Ricky Chainsaw LaPointe. A couple of technical uh, issues on the Zoom call, but uh, we did our best to make them go away. Enjoy it. So, who are you? Where are you from? <laughs> I am. My legal name is Richard Lapointe, or Ricky Lapointe. Um, the entire world knows me as Chainsaw, and uh, I'm a guitar tech, and I have been traveling in the world for pretty close to forty years, and uh, you know work for a couple dozen different bands and you know always seem to be asked back every time I I left the tour it seemed like I, I must have done a pretty good job because I usually get asked back and that's probably a key to survival here it's a dead giveaway for sure yeah uh, and uh, so did when you were Coming up, did you like study the arts as a kid? Did you go take music classes or? or, or um, I did music classes and all through like grammar school, all the way to eighth grade. And once I got into high school, everything was just out of my league. And uh, I, I discovered that I didn't have the, the music gene to actually stand up there and play music and not be too bored or not get distracted or forgetful. And uh, I kind of backed away from the actually being a musician to actually working on the instruments that I had and uh, getting more into the uh, behind the scenes part. I had a couple friends that worked for a lighting company in Chicago and uh, they you know, seemed like they they had a pretty cool job. And I was like, yeah, I could go and do that. I could go do that job in a heartbeat. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'd go do it and learn as fast as I can. So you know, somewhere around 79 or so, I uh, happened into a lighting company working in their wood shop, building road cases and uh, wiring wiring up like bars of lights to go on tour and uh that was my start and uh i did you know a couple months of that kind of stuff prepping for tours that were going out and then uh somewhere in i think it was 1979 or 80 i went and did a a cheap trick show and cheap trick was going out on tour and i let the boss know that I was interested in going on the road and, you know, laughed at me and sent me off. And a couple of days later, there was like 
okay, well, we might actually need somebody. And so that was my foot in the door. And uh, that was, that changed everything. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about it. I hit, I hit the road, you know, you know on, a, on a run and tried to keep up the whole time. Just, what was the first concert you you attended as a as an audience member? Um, it was probably like 1974, and it was Alice Cooper at the uh, Chicago Stadium. And uh, I don't I don't remember that much of it because I was way over on the side, could barely see the stage, and it was so loud that. You know, it was just a muffled, loud, and obnoxious sound. And I was like, wow, this is a concert? I don't know about this. But just going there to see that, because at that time in, like, 1974, he was, like, one of the biggest things out there. And, you know, I, I was intrigued with that. And, um, you know, 60 years later, 40-some years later, he's still doing the same thing. It's amazing. He guy, guy which works is like crazy. unbelievable, which yeah. is unbelievable because he's been going since the late sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, and he seems to be just holding up very well. And he appears to be yeah. the only healthy member of the Hollywood vampires too. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's definitely the one that gets some exercise. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. Actually, some of the people I've talked to about that, the, the first experience wasn't all, all that great. Uh, but did you have a, I got to do that kind of moment where you kind of saw what was going on and said, uh, I'll, sure, I'll take this. Um, I, uh, probably my freshman year of high school or maybe sophomore year of high school, the, our high school had a uh, concert on in the gym and uh, the uh, they set up a stage at one end and uh, put up some lights light towers and everything and the band was sticks and they were just about to get their big break and uh, I got in there early and I was sitting on the gym floor right in front of the stage watching these guys put stuff together and hook up wires and and you know I was like a little intrigued with all that. I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. And the checking guitars and, you know, you know, playing the drums, just getting drum sounds and drum levels and stuff like that. I didn't understand what it all was at the time, but I I was kind of interested in it. And then uh, it wasn't too much longer after that, that um, I went to a party, uh, and back then at parties, people would bring their metal records and uh, wait in line to play them on the phonograph at the party, right? And uh, somebody had this Jackson Brown record, uh, the Running on Empty record, and uh, they put it on and I started listening to it and everything just came into complete focus because that was what I wanted to do guy driving down you know highway five into la or that guy you know up on stage being the first in and the first out and that's when everything came into focus and that was when 
I decided that that was going to be my life. And uh, I just drew a, drew a line towards it and followed that path. And, you know, a lot of people helped me out along the way. And um, eventually I got the chance to go and work for Jackson Brown, which was kind of a big highlight of my life because of him being kind of like the, um, the catalyst of me deciding what I wanted to do when I grow up, even though I've still not grown up. Ah. And neither of you, don't, don't do, don't go it's not in our DNA, DNA to grow up. Certain people are like that. You know, going to the next town is what's in my DNA. It's like wherever we're going next, that's my favorite town. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, how I operated for 40 years for so many years before I got married, my Halliburton suitcases sat on a six foot table in my bedroom, packed and ready to go. And, uh, waiting for a call from Travis or Boomer or Buddha or one of the guys that, you know, kept my number handy. And, uh, I was ready to go at a moment's notice, and I lived like that for a long time. Well, you named some pretty pretty serious names there. I was going to ask you next if uh, you had a mentor of any sort, and I can um, I can guess a few of your answers. The the people who I learned the most from, uh, as far as my craft, and you know, dealing with all different kinds of guitars, whether they be acoustic or old ones or new ones, electrics, basses, oddball instruments or whatever. I think I learned a lot from Jackson Brown because he had all these complex tunings and he had a different way of listening to the notes that were being played just by the way they sounded next to each other so harmonics and and just like you know just tuning that was just slightly off but could be adjusted just by finger pressure or you know things like that so i think because he insisted on things being so you know on the money for him it pushed me to be really really um um because i knew that i couldn't make up a story and say, oh, yeah, I think it's probably a cold solder joint because I knew that he probably soldered it. And, I, you know, there was you know, there was none of that. There's no bullshit factor there. You couldn't say make up a story and say, well, I think it was probably this or that or whatever. He already knew exactly what it was. So everything had to be right. And, you know, I had to go way out of my way to make sure it was right before he walked in the building. So. It, he, you know, as far as the electronic part of it, I, I would say those two guys were probably the most influential. Um, the guy that made me be ready for anything, and you as well, was Bruce Springsteen. Because when you do one of his shows, you don't know what song is coming next. You don't know what song. You don't know what set list. You just need to be ready when the song gets counted off. And... Uh, you know, if you're not, they will leave you behind. You know, and uh, so there's several aspects to the responsibility of doing what we do. And uh, 
whether it be the electronic part or the instrument part or the mental part or, you know, whatever, you know, you've got to be able to be, you know, everything from a, a psychologist to a electronics, you know, engineer. And, uh, you know, if you're not, you can at least fake it in between and, you know, but you got to be very careful because, you know, you just, you know, there's a lot of eyes upon you and there's not a lot of time to recover from mistakes or problems. And uh, when you got 20,000, 30, 40, 50,000 people staring at you and there's a bad cable somewhere, you better know which cable it is. And uh, there better be a spare one somewhere close. But, um, but you know, most of the time, it's not just the cable. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a beginning. Of yeah, a, it's a multitude of things that are ganging up on you. You have to become and the timing is always so good. Yeah. But, um, I had that happen where they called. I was out trying to fix something on a pedal board during a changeover. It, at the Meadowlands and uh, they yeah. hit the house lights and left me in the dark there trying to fix it before the band went on stage. God. And then uh, they're done that. They couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't understand why I was so mad. <laughs> it's like, thanks for checking with me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a high pressure situation. So, I mean, you, you talked about some pretty special people there. What do you, I mean, what do you carry with you? I mean, you went into this just a, a moment ago, but I just wanted to sort of elaborate yeah. on it. You know, what, what lessons did you learn from them that, that, that just sort of keep you, guide you through these uh, ever-changing events we get into? Um, I, I learned really early on that an artist who's on stage, whether it be just a guitar player or the main guy at the lead mic or whatever, when you're working for him, the best you can do is to keep him as comfortable as possible so he can get up and do his job and not worry about anything that's you know, my responsibility. And over the course of months or years or whatever, you you get that you get that trust to be able to uh, you know make that person so comfortable that they could get up there and do anything and not without technical you know problems or something being out of tune and always being ready to recover from a problem and um, you know and knock on wood you know we've been lucky there have been that many problems because we kind of like you know, make sure that everything is ready before, you know, whoever goes up on stage and the lights go down that you can be very you know, confident that sound is going to come out of the bass or the guitar or a keyboard or a microphone or whatever. And um, there isn't ever going to be any, you know, looking over to the side of the stage going, what's going on? What's wrong? What's going on? You know, it's always be like, okay, you're fine. Here's the next song. Here's the next guitar. Here's this. Don't forget to plug it in. You know, stuff like that. And, uh, but keeping somebody comfortable on stage 
and being as consistent as you possibly can from day to day. You know, back in the in the 80s, when I would plug things in, I would be so suspicious of everything that was around me that I would always put the, every amp into the same plug every night. Everything would go in the same, you know, uh, you know, power supply or power, you know, distro or whatever. And I would run my cables the same every single show just to have that consistency because that was something I could control. You know, I could not control wireless. Phones. I could not control the actual transfer of electronic signal from one place to another without, you know, being at the, um, uh, mercy of its you know, invisibleness if you want to it was like if you can't see it i can't trust it i can't see radio frequency you know the only reason i can see audio frequency is because there's a meter over here that but you know if it's something physical that you can touch and plug in and and hold in your hand you know that you can control that and make sure it's plugged in correctly and those cables have not been beat up or damaged or you know, Something can't just be, you know, uh, compromise it during the show. You got two hours of somebody up there doing their thing and uh, the whole rest of the day and night to make sure it doesn't happen. You know, I always, I always had the, you know, the um, description of like, well, Rody is a guy who fixes stuff after it breaks, but a guitar tech fixes it before it breaks and make sure that it never breaks during the show. And not really a, it's not really a slam on a roadie because I am one and I have been for a long time. I'm not, I don't think of it as a derogatory thing, but the, you know, the difference between is when you're going to start using words like tech and uh, you have, don't even really have any formal training <laughs> better be careful with it. So I, I remember filling out my first passport thing and it had my occupation. And I said, I put on their, you know, technician. And I was like, should I be able to do that? I mean, I, I really kind of learned things as I went here, but I was really lucky because I had really great people teaching me as I went. And, you know, that was the importance of having really good friends or really great allies on a tour. Like I had Mario Lucchesi and I had Albert, Albert and I had, you know, guys like that who were always willing to, you know, show me how to solder better or show me how to build a cable that'll last forever. I, I was really lucky to have those guys take me under their wing. And, you know, I, you know, I was always an organiz, organizational guy who liked things to be really, you know, laid out nice. So, you know, when I started working for Billy as a guitar tech, uh, first thing I did is make pedal boards for everybody so the pedals didn't have to get taped down to the carpet every night with new tape. It was just such a waste of time and effort when I could just plop down a piece of wood with everything on it, wired to go. And um, so I just kept, you know, learning something new every day. And, you know, whenever I had to take something apart, somebody would come in and look over my shoulder to make sure everything was okay. And I was really lucky to have that. That's what I usually keep the Canadians around for. But yeah, there's been a, 
it's a very complex learning curve, I'd have to say. <laughs> but, um, so um, maybe a little bit more as far as, as you personally, but who's influenced you like then and now? I mean, as far as musicians and, uh, and, and people who are performers. I mean, um, I would say just about everybody that I've ever worked for has impressed me one way or another. Um, whether it was with their singing, whether it was the way they took care of us on tour, whether it was, you know, how well they played their instrument, how they, you know, how they delivered their music to the audience was always something uh, that I paid attention to, how well they did that. Um, their rapport with the audience live on stage where the, the crowd feels like they're getting something extra than the CD just because you're seeing them live and he's, he or she are, are talking, telling a story about how a song was written or, you know, a story that goes along with the, with the song. And, you know, there's a lot of artists that have a lot of, you know, little chatter before a song and that makes it really interesting. And I always liked the way an artist would connect with his audience like that. And then to see that when somebody's up on stage and they look like they're having a good time playing their music, you know that that's going to resonate to the crowd and the crowd is going to pick up on that and they're going to want to see that show over and over again because it just makes the quality so much better. You know, I, you know, back in the, you know, way back in the 80s, I remember going to see you know, this hair band called Warrant. And they weren't the greatest band in the world, but they were entertaining. And I looked up on stage and they looked like they were having a great time. And I was like, well, that's, that's everything. You know, that means everything to that crowd. You know, the music might not be the most complex stuff and the song it might just be, you know, you know, hair band metal songs, which, you know, some of them were pretty good. I, you know, I kind of liked them and I liked their show. And when I saw that, it, I, you know, kind of said to myself, if they look like they're having a great time up there. Everybody out in that crowd is going to have a good time because they're, because it's infectious and it, it is a very important aspect to somebody doing a live show. So we've, uh, we've just started to touch on this, but I'm getting into my backline questions. And one of the ones I have here is, uh, what are your thoughts about musical texts as opposed to technical texts? I mean, there are guys who are very adept with the guitar or, or drums yeah. or whatever. And, uh, and there are some people that aren't, I mean, I'm one of them. Uh, <laughs> I can't play but a handful of chords, but I keep getting yeah. hired to take care of guitars. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's a lot of information out there that people can pick up fairly, you know, without too much trouble on the internet with YouTube and Google and the learning something from the internet. You know, it's not like it's, you know, a bad thing because you're learning and learning anyway is learning and it's very important. Um, 
the guys that, you know, have been doing this for, you know, a few decades had to learn without the internet and they had to learn hands-on and a lot of things they had to learn from people who already knew how to do it. And I was really lucky to, in my early days on tour, to be friends with some of the guitar techs. When I was driving trucks for a few years, I was friends with the guitar techs. And because I had a lot of time on my hands, I'd go in and help them out with stuff and watch how they worked and watch what they did. And uh, for a really long time, I was like, man, I could never do that job. Those guys are really good. That guy just took a 1952 Esquire back to the hotel and refretted it in his hotel room. <laughs> and the next day, they went up on stage and played it. I would never be able to do that. So I was kind of, I, I, I was kind of um, leery of how well I would do. But as I moved around to different guitar decks, I realized that a lot of them weren't as good as some of the others. <laughs> and I was like, well, if those guys can pull it off. I could get up there and take it too. And it feels like that's what I did at first, but I actually genuinely wanted to learn things and definitely learned a lot of stuff from some guys that are very well respected. You know, I learned doing a guitar setup from Larry Craig at, from who lives out on the West coast who worked for Neil Young for, I don't know how long, 30 years. He's one of the most knowledgeable guitar, especially acoustic guitar, you know, Luthier is out there. And uh, when I was working for Nils Lofgren, he came in to set up Nils' guitars and walked me through what he was doing. That was like somebody giving you a pot of gold, man. There's nothing that you can replace that learning experience with. And it was two nights in an airplane hangar with clip lights, you know, right. and just freezing in there in New Jersey, drinking Yoo-Hoo's. And watching this guy work on guitars and I was like completely, you know, drawn in and wanted to, you know, and he was very open to telling me what to do because he knew I was going to be taking care of his buddy Mills and he wanted Mills to be able to be comfortable. And uh, that, that's so much really a part lucky. of it's so much a part of what we do is creating that environment where they don't have to think about all yeah. the other stuff. They yeah. can just think about the notes and the next things they got to play. Yep. How many how many pages of music you have to shuffle through to be a guitar player on the Springsteen tour? Oh yeah. There's only like 400 songs in the list. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got out of there when they started taking requests from the crowd that weren't his songs. That's when I yeah. I bailed out. That was that was pretty much where it went. Oh my God! Could it be <laughs> any more? ad lib and anymore what do we do now you know I, I think we were in australia and for no reason some outdoor show in australia or somewhere and somebody held up a sign that said drift away i'm like why that song and bruce sees it and he starts trying to play it next thing you know the band's doing it yeah you know the words are up there. He sings it. It does the song. And I'm like, where the, where the hell did that come from? Exactly. Drift away? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Bruce Springsteen show. But he's like one of those guys who can adapt. And adapting is very, very important. Yeah. Whether crazy. it's your schedule or your, you know, how, you know from a 
20 hour day down to a, you know, three days in a row or, you know, 15, 18 hours on a bus or long overseas trips, you know, on an airplane, we just adapt to it. And, you know, it's, it gets in your blood and that's what you know, and that's what you do. And here 40 years later, it's still the only thing I want to do. I would go, I would kill to go out and do a show tomorrow, but that's not in the plans. But, um, I would, uh, I would have to say that people ask me if I was going to retire. I'm like, retire. It took me forever to get this great job. I'm not going to give it up yet. Yeah. As long as I can still walk around and, uh, run up the stairs and hand over a guitar. I'm going to keep trying to do this as long as I can. Because it's what I love, you know? Yeah. You know, I loved it from the minute I put that needle down on that record and listened to those songs about the roadies, about traveling, about being in a hotel room, about being in this and that, and the the underlying life of touring music, it was in my blood, and it has never left. And I've never sat and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I hate touring. I've never said anything like that. But Yeah, I, I, the people that say that go away and come back four years later with no money in their pocket going, yeah. uh, hey, can I get my old yeah. job back? Yeah, they'll, they'll leave a tour, a perfectly good running tour, as a long-term employee to go start a business, which we all know is what everybody needs to do, is start a business, right? that is not in my DNA. Yeah. I'm probably the worst businessman on the planet, (laughs) but I, I build all these guitars and I hang them up upstairs and I put them together and I, you know, I save them from wherever they were going good or bad and give them a new life. You know, up in my, That's my wife. Yeah, but sorry. That's That's okay. That's the alert call. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a piece of furniture being delivered. Okay. We take a break here. It's not, not right now, but I don't know. I I don't see a truck out there. They're supposed to be bringing a couch, but Uh it's going out to the guest house. My brother-in-law is going to move in there. He's doing radiation treatments for about another week. So he's going to move in so he can stay up here with us and be close to the hospital system. So we got a couch coming for him and move some furniture around in the guest house, which is pretty cozy out there. It's the cowboy room. All my Arizona stuff is out there. <laughs> and then the bathroom is the pirate themed bathroom. <laughs> it's almost too much to take. It's turning into Graceland, isn't it? Yeah. I need a jungle room someday. <laughs> So what do you think you bring your clients when you work with them? You bring them transparency or do you bring them influence? I mean, do you, do you see, get yourself into a situation where rather than just facilitating people, you share your, what you have as far as, you know, your experience. And um, I mean, like the difference between like a Sherpa or a caddy as opposed to just a pack mule, you know, we get plenty yeah. of people that just schlep stuff around. But there are other people well, that are help them uh, through the wilderness, you know. 
yeah, there's, it depends on who it is. Right. There's certain artists who, you know, they need a little bit of, you know, uh, I don't know, TLC than others. Yeah. Um, they need to have a little bit more attention paid or more attention on this and not so much on that or, or, you know, some, some, you know, guitar players or artists or singers or whatever demand you to constantly have your eyes on them. Right. And when you know that that's how they are, that's what you do. There's other ones who want you to control all their effects buttons. Not really my game. Yeah. I'm really bad at it. So I've, I've managed to, to stay away from that type of, um, you know, that type of touring where I had to do all the effects and have everything else ready too, because especially when I want to start loading out, or, which I always do. But um, you, uh, there, there's a, a broad spectrum of how different some people are. Some people don't need to hear a thing. They just want their guitar and want to play it. Right. They want it in tune and they want it to be, you know, set up correctly and, you know, without any, any nonsense. Other people, sometimes, you know, I've had some people who needed encouragement or needed to, to uh, be assured that, you know, you know, we had a problem at the last gig. There won't be that problem tonight. Right. There was, um, uh, you know, certain, certain players are just such pros that, you know, they're just, they switch on right. and that guitar right. goes over their head. They put that guitar on, they become that person. Right. All they need from you is to trade off guitars and make sure nothing happens to that. You know, you know, I work for Melissa Etheridge. She plays this big old 12 string and she plays them really hard and she plays great and she's a pro, but you can get two songs out of that guitar. It needs to be tuned. So you work out a, a, like a routine. Okay. After these two songs we're trading out and you know, we made that work and she knew that she could keep on strumming that big old guitar and it would be in tune because I was paying attention to it nonstop. And, uh, you know, and like I said, she's a complete pro and she didn't need any kind of, you know, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, just explanation of anything. She just knew that she could depend on you. Some artists are a little bit, a little bit tougher customers. They have, um, they need some time to, for you to develop the trust between them and you. You know, I've had that with a few, few artists where it took me a while to get their confidence. And because, you know, I you know, made sure to focus on that and really, really try to become that person that they could trust that I felt that I was going above and beyond. And, um, but in the long run, it made the relationship much better. And, uh, you know, I had a few, few customers that were pretty tough and took a little while to get, you know, 
get their confidence. But once I did, they genuinely thought that they couldn't be without me on that stage because they knew that I would be willing to do whatever to make sure that that guitar always had sound coming out of it. Nobody ever, you know, compromised any of his instruments or his amps or any of his equipment that he, you know, I'm just saying he, because of, you know, that name doesn't have to come up, but there's been several and to get their confidence is a really, really important first step. Once you get to know who they are, you need to get their confidence so you can be trusted handling a 1958 Flying V, Karina Wood, with light strings on it, you know, <laughs> or a 59 Baseman that was built in 1959 in February, the same month that I was born, mm-hmm. and make sure that that thing has bias set perfectly every show. You know, when you get that confidence, it's like getting to use the cruise control button. And then they know that they can count on you and there's not a lot of arguing or complaining or or questioning or anything like that. So we get the, I'm looking at uh, the element of crew. Is it a team or is it a collection of coordinated loners? You know, what is more productive? I mean, very often you find these guys who are like little mad scientists that are kind of in their own world. You just yeah. give them you give them this area of responsibility and they take care as opposed to, you know, yeah. being a Florida Gator or something, something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> Until I started getting into college football, I thought it was an individual kind of thing. But now I understand that it is the team. And I, I, I wrote something a few years ago explaining how everybody, like this was like with Billy Joel's crew, how we only do two shows a month. So we all get on a plane from wherever we live and we come in and we come together after not seeing anybody for two weeks. We all know exactly what to do. We go to our little corner of the building and start putting our building blocks in place. And everything gets done in the right order because we work as a team. So you've got your rigging, you've got your lighting trusses, or you've got your grid, then your trusses, then your screens, then your sound, and then this, and then everything moves in, and then the stage moves back. Everything works as a team. And it, you know, it has definitely become something that's a team sport, but all those building blocks have to go into their special place every single gig. And that's when the lights go down and the show is right. And when the show is over and the artist walks off stage, we start pulling those building blocks back and putting them in the trucks. And then everybody gets done. They have a slice of pizza they get on a plane and fly home and they share some time with their family or their motorcycles or their fishing boat or their wife or their kids or their tools or motorcycles. You look around at all the, all the things you've collected and you can smile and say, yeah, I did a good job and I'm going to be back there in two weeks to do it again and again and again. And it's definitely, 
transcended into the team sport kind of thing. Now that I understand how football works a lot more, it's yeah. the same with probably everything in life, you know, and I, I think that's why, you know, especially in the South or in Texas or wherever, football is everything here. Man. Let yeah. me tell you, everything revolves around high school football. And if you're not into that with your kids, whether it's cheerleading or the football players, nobody wants to know you in these towns, not in Central Florida. Yeah. And uh, there are bitter rivalries in this state, and it's a very good, healthy fun. <laughs> but then you always have that, you know, the, the Scottish boffin who has to have his little room, and it's got to be temp controlled, and he gets in there with a side iron. And he fixes cables and amps and switch boxes and things like that all day long. And, you know, I think that that's great. I've been on several tours like that. But I'm thinking I'd rather build that so good the first time that I never have to fix it. And before I go to fix it, I'll throw it away and get something else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I just want to, you know, be able to know that piece of equipment that I put out on stage is going to actually work from 8.05 until 10.35 at night and without a blink or a, or a, a skip, you know, not a, a anything, no utterance of a problem, static, you know, intermittent something. I don't want to ever have that. And if I ever get close to it, it goes away. Yeah. I've got a whole whole bunch of stuff here that didn't make it. If you can see <laughs> down on this board, uh -huh. there's a, and can you see it there? It's yeah, a I got purple it. ESP that Tommy Burns used to play. Played it for about six years with Billy. And then on Enrique Iglesias, the last show, he threw it across the stage and demolished it. Oh, so I picked up all the parts and put it all in a gig bag and it fell to the bottom of a guitar trunk for a few years and then eventually i brought it home and put it in the attic about a month ago i found it up there i went what's this doing here i gotta make something artistic out of it so i exploded all the parts with hot glue and and uh cabinet screws and uh hanging on the wall somewhere yeah well you know i've got I've got pieces of uh, kitchen implements and uh, broken symbols pin pinned on my wall of shame. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I know exactly where that's about. Um, I've got a full-tone OCD pedal up there that looks pretty critical. <laughs> it's not going to make it. I know. I, I had three of them out on the last thing I was doing, and I think they've all been retired. Yeah. I, uh, my... Uh, my daughter, who's very, very observation, observational, I guess, she has this uh, vinyl cutting machine called a Cricut. Yeah. You can make like, you know, transfer vinyl stickers to make, you know, do graphics on things or whatever. She made me a, a, a full tone sucks sticker. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> With the full tone logo and it just says sucks underneath it. And I'm like, oh. Thanks. That was my Father's Day gift. I'm like, couldn't have been anything better. <laughs> you saw that they took all his stuff out of out of, out of Guitar Center. 
Oh yeah, I know. All the full tone stuff. They crazy. Stop doing business with them. Mm-hmm. All that. That's it. I don't that know. The guy's over. just guy's just not a very nice guy. I guess I don't know. Well, anyways, for a, yeah. for a while there, he was doing okay, but uh, yeah. Well, I will not deny the builds a good pedal. Right. But nothing lasts forever, and you know when your customer owns five or six of those pedals. That means they've got a pretty good investment of almost a thousand bucks of your equipment and was just asking for some help and immediately get put on this. Oh, have you tried changing the battery? Oh, let me think. You know, I never thought of that. And that just set me off. I don't know. (laughs) So... Anyways, we found plenty of pedals that sound just as good, trust me. And they all have true bypass now, and they all hold up for a long time. You like that. So this goes a long line. Whinging and wind-ups. I look at it as being complaining as an art form and uh, hazing to thin the herd. I mean, I've never seen you ever pick on anybody or or, or, or razz anybody. Oh, no. No. Oh no, not me. <laughs> no, I've uh, I've been on my best behavior since uh, 2003. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> ask anybody. I'll do it. I'll do it. Just ask anybody around here. Oh man. That was how I got everybody's attention on the last time I was out. Oh man. <laughs> when I just said, "Okay, I'm holding the guitar by the neck." Ask anybody here. I'll do it. <laughs> I'm not faking this. But anyways, that could be oh. left unsaid. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, it's funny. I mean, out of a lot of the different things that I've done in my career, to find people that really get into doing, I mean, not necessarily what we're alluding to, but uh, but wind-ups in general. I mean, yeah. I, you know. There, my, there are some who are so good at it. Yeah. They're so good that, you know, even after 30 years of working with them or more, they still can get you and still get you wound up. Mike Rizal, one of the very best, Mm -hmm. is so low key and he just goes for the throat and you never even realize it until it's over. Terry Lawless. Terry Lawless. When he came out for a while, he would tell these jokes and then the same time he says, how about I just come and tell you the punchline and then we laugh anyways. And it saves me some, saves me some vocal cords. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a handful of them. Yeah. that's but, for uh, sure. The hazing thing that was, that was all pretty good when you were living on a bus and everybody had to share the same space. Right. And uh, the, uh, you know, the nights where I would like, you know, make sure nobody slept on the bus. It was, some of them were classic, you know, they would have been great skits on SNL because I would, you know, one night Harry had a symbol that he had to send back from the hotel oh, yeah. and, and, uh, and there were two drumsticks in the, in the bag with it. And I pulled it out and I put the symbol over the tip of the drumstick and kept walking through the hallway of the bus, beating on that symbol, telling everybody to get up. There's no sleeping on my bus. I've been here the longest, so it's my bus, and I decide what happens. And 
I would pull curtains open. I would pull people out of their books. And uh, I don't really do that very much anymore. <laughs> After two rotator cuff repairs and a, a couple of surgeries and, you know, you know, 61 years old, it's not quite, you can't really back up your game. No. It was a lot easier when I was 350 pounds than it was when I'm 220. You know, it's a much less intimidating specimen there at 220 go. than I was at 350. No. I mean, but, we all we all experience the wear and tear of what we do. The, uh, the hours we keep, the travel, physical, emotional, stress, yep. food, exercise, volume. You know, I mean, there's just a distance from all the things that you uh, hold dear, yeah. hold dear, you know. I mean, and it's, uh, you know, it's some people don't think it's real life. And yeah. uh, and they might be right. I'm still not quite sure. Right. But, uh, it's just one of those things that we, I mean, it, I, I was just been on the phone talking to a number of people. It's like every roadie just went in and had surgery done. They saw, mm -hmm. fi finally this saw is a our, window. This is our window of opportunity. I know. So, I mean, I've got guys in having their shoulders fixed and, yeah. you know, this and that. It's just amazing yeah. to me. Um, so, this is a good question. Um, yeah. When it goes bad on the gig, do you take it or do you walk? Do you confront it or do you stuff your feelings and just say, I'm not coming back when this is over? Um. I always try to finish what I start. So if you're talking about like in the middle of a tour, getting fed up with something and wanting to leave that, you know, that doesn't happen. I, I don't, I don't think that I would do that to any artist unless the, uh, there were things where I had a long-term employer come get ready to, to go back on tour. And that's when you and I, well, that was, that would have been in 2002. I was working for journey and I was set up to go do the summer with journey, but I told them that I have two long-term employees that are my priorities. And um, if they all of a sudden decide they're going on tour, I may have to bail on. And they all said, Oh, no problem. We'll work that, work that out when it happens. Yeah. So turn off around June 1st, I get a phone call that I need to be in New Jersey and I'm in Santa Rosa, California. And, uh, so I had to, um, I had to bail on that, but instead of just bailing on it, I brought in a guy that I could trust and suggested they hired him. I stayed there for a week. I taught him everything about all the gear every amp and wire and back of pedal board, everything that he needed to know. We went over every guitar, all the Floyd Rose bridges. I gave him the, you know, the full course on, you know, keeping Floyd Rose guitars in tune. And I left him with a guy that worked for him for probably six or seven years nonstop. It's not like I just left him, right. but there's still, you know, that's pretty much like the only time I ever had to bail on a tour, but it was because of priority uh, uh, employer that I'd already worked for for 20 years nearly, and uh, I needed to go back to that. 
Well, that's how and I ended up there. You had someone yeah. else who had to do their number yeah. one gig. And, you know, uh, you know, that's you know how I got there. the guy you replaced had to go back to his long-term gig, and which is completely understandable. And, um, you know, you know, right now I'm doing this, you know, we're not doing anything, but I've been on this Billy Joel thing now for over six years, six and a half years, nonstop. And, uh, we just keep playing the same building over and over again and, you know, go out and do a few baseball stadiums and a few, uh, you know, a few alternate shows, but it's usually just once a month at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Uh, but right now we have the best team and the best crew that we've ever had. And um, even though we haven't done anything for four, four months, you know, I think everybody was playing and everybody was singing their best. And the crew was hitting on all cylinders. We had, you know, great lighting guys. We had, you know, everybody on the crew was somebody who synced up really well with us. And it was like, our little family and because it's been long term that, you know, everybody is just stuck around and, uh, you know, we keep the same personnel. There were, there were years where we'd go through so many lighting guys that we had to give them numbers, not names. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was like the revolving door of lighting guys, but, you know, for whatever reason that was the lighting company and the people that they had weren't really up for the, for the job. They didn't really right. want to do the job, obviously. So they'd leave or go to something else. But right now, as we left it after Mexico City was the last show, I think, and then one New York show after that. We haven't done anything since that. That would have been March. Yeah. And um, as we left it off, it's been, you know, we were in a pretty good place with everybody, you know. But, you know, when you do the same you know, the same building most of the time, you get into a pretty good routine. Yeah. And uh, it gets very comfortable. But um, luckily, we still throw in a stadium here and there where we have to get on golf carts and terrorize a sports playing field for a couple of days. Absolutely. And uh, drive a forklift where it's not supposed to go. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Tell me one thing that most people, including the ones you work with, wouldn't think of you. Um, I, I don't know. I, You're pretty much an open book, but yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty emotional person when it comes to my friends and family, and um, there's a lot of times that I, I struggle with that, but. You know, we, we tend to care about the people we work with a lot because we spend so much time with them and we go through so much and you, you, you just, you get a bond that's as strong as blood any day. And because of that, you, you care about everybody out there and you, you really want to, you know, be that, you know, person on the crew who always comes through and always does their job well and we know that everybody from the guy sitting at the piano all the way down to the last owner operator drive driver that shows up with a spare trailer can feel like they're in a 
very uh, strongly, you know, knitted together, you know, operation. I, I call it the machine, but it's more of a family, and it's it's as much family to me as it is my blood family, which yeah. I probably have better relationships with the people on the road. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but um because we've spent more time together and we've, we've, uh, you, you know, we've just built this bond through the, you know, adversity of touring and being in Europe for seven or eight weeks and being on a European bus for way too long. And, uh, you know, good catering, bad catering, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, you make up for it somewhere. Yeah. You know, you know, trust me, nobody on any tour that I've ever been on has ever died from s- starvation. That's for sure. Yeah. They haven't even gotten close. Oh. <laughs> so, so uh, I would never, I would never think that at any time because there's always something around to eat. So, but, um, what would you say is your proudest moment professional or personally? Um, there's a couple of them, I guess. I guess, um, well, actually getting through my first show as a guitar tech on my own was a pretty proud moment. And uh, only had one screw up. I put the capo in the wrong position. <laughs> but, you know, capos come off pretty fast, especially oh, yeah. when they're getting thrown at you. <laughs> But that, that was a pretty proud moment. What kind of person does it take for the constant movement we go through on the road? Um, you have to have a, um, a true desire to be on the move, going from city to city. Uh, you have to have a high tolerance for being away from the things that you love, like your motorcycles, your cars, your family, your, uh, you know, your whatever, and your houses and all the things that we've collected. Right. And, uh, but because we, we create our own, our own world as we travel with, you know, being on a flight or being on a bus or being, you know, stocking the bus with this or that or being in a hotel room and bringing all the things you need to be comfortable in a hotel room and, you know, so on and so forth. Truly want to travel and truly want to be in a different city all the time. Yeah. And um, without that, it will eventually get difficult for you. You know, you know, some people have this, you know, you know, oh, I can't wait to get home. I'm like, well, I can't either. But once I'm there for a few days, I may, might want to go to Sydney, Australia. Yeah. Or, exactly. you know, somewhere where there's less COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of our guys, our uh, security guy from there, and he flew to Sydney about a week ago, and he's been in quarantine at, at a hotel now for like a week. 
So that you have to eat the food they bring you, and you have to stay in that room without leaving for like two weeks. It's crazy. But at least he was able to go. A lot yeah. of people, like even Canadians, can't even get it into Canada, and the Europeans don't want us there. Yeah. Like, sorry. Yeah. I guess can't we're going to you. We're gonna have to do some U.S. shows in the near future, I guess. Yeah. Do you have any hobbies on the road? Do you on the road? Else? Yeah. On the road, not really. I, you know, because for the last six years, we haven't really been touring. We do a show and then I go home. Or we do like, you know, a couple of days of load in at a stadium and then I'm back home again. Okay, there we go. So, you know, when I was touring and we would be in Europe or somewhere that getting out for a walk was always a thing, going by the walking street where all the restaurants are finding some kind of food and, you know, going someplace to see some, you know, you know, even though you've been to a lot of the cities, you know, a handful of times, it's always nice to go see some of the old, you know, architecture of Europe or, you know, something, you know, cool, go on the, uh, Harbor Bridge in Sydney or, you know, something like that. You know, I've done stuff like gone to uh, go to baseball games when we're in the States. So we, um, you know, in New York, sometimes we'll get Yankees tickets the night before our show and go, you know, jump in a car and go to Yankee Stadium for a show. That's always fun. Not much of that going on this year. And then, uh, you know, at home, I've got a dozen hobbies, but, you know, I, I spread myself pretty thin for all of them. You know, I've always got guitars that I'm working on. Uh, my fishing equipment's all right there. My soldering stuff's over here. And then the wood shop's out there. And uh, I made this um, a humidor for Steve Cohen, our lighting designer. Right. And, uh, I got intrigued with it with a from a YouTube video, and uh, you know somebody was making a humidor out of you know you know just from raw materials, and I'm like, that's kind of cool. I think I could do that. And one video led to another video, then another, and then next thing you know, I'm going to get like some rough cut maple and um, cutting it out and cutting it into pieces, and you know that started last November. I'm just about ready to ship it now. That's how fast things happen here. It's like a Dumble amp. Oh, God. You could get a Dumble amp before you could get a humidor from me. <laughs> Anyways, it's going to be a, it's a gift for him just because, you know, he was the guy that I knew that smoked cigars. And I'm like, what am I going to do with it? So, but it, it turned out pretty good. Yeah. So I'll get cool. that, that packed up and hopefully FedEx doesn't drop it or lose it. They, they never they never fail to amaze me at what can actually happen. <laughs> what, oh, damage done through cardboard and bubble wrap. We do a, we go through a lot of bubble wrap here in this house. Yeah, sure. trust me. I break down cardboard every single day here. The Amazon truck stops off about eight times a day. We haven't been going to any stores or anywhere. We've been just ordering everything in groceries you know i had home depot send me uh clear lacquer a couple weeks ago <laughs> i need three cans of watco clear gloss lacquer 
there they were on the doorstep. Well, Angela, but, uh, Angela's keeping me away from the grocery store. She wants me in. She wants no, me I have no desire to go into any of those places. I've been, I've been really good. I've got a, a doctor's appointment tomorrow, and I've been doing my cardio rehab uh, early morning. When it uh, starts at 6.30 at the hospital. So I leave the house at 6. Down there, I leave there at 7.30. I'm back home by 8. So it's convenient time of day, except it disrupts the whole house when I leave. So, but I, I still got quite a bit of that to do. But it took a while for me to get in there because the gym was closed for like two and a half months. That's right. And now they're just now letting people in. And uh, they do your temperature. They give you a new mask. And they clean everything in there like constantly. Right. There's a lot of, a lot of alcohol in there. It's not getting consumed we have this bottle of, we have this bottle of hand sanitizer we've got that came straight from a distillery in kentucky and i swear it's, it smells like the worst vodka you ever saw in your oh. life oh it's tito's <laughs> <laughs> it's gluten-free vodka it's got to be good for you that's yeah that's why i'm trying not to yeah exactly yeah. gluten-free so yeah man i just wanted to touch base with you and, and uh, yeah. ask you a few questions and I really appreciate your time. I miss you. It's, it's been way too long. I love getting texts from you and Michael, just whatever. I saw that he was, there were some fires going on out by him, different places. And one of them was close to a friend of mine, but um, I guess they've settled down a little bit now, but it's always great to hear from you guys, especially when you send me a picture of a guitar as a quiz. What is this? <laughs> I keep I had to look. There was one you sent about two years ago, and I, I must have looked at that thing for an hour before I finally gave up and called Nate in St. Paul and said, Nate, what is this goddamn guitar? <laughs> he immediately sent it back. It's a blah, 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 blah. Yeah, he I'm would. I'm like, oh, why didn't I know that? <laughs> I should have well. known that. You know, I'll definitely need to take the guitars off the wall for for a little while. Yeah. Maybe maybe this conversation has uh, shamed me into doing some some uh, cleaning work. I I just what I do is I'll, I'll I'll pick one out that's been up there and neglected and it's got rusty strings. I'll bring it down. I'll clean it up. I've probably done like eight complete rehabs to guitars that were just fine, but they just needed like a pot and an output jack or. Just to clean them up or clean the bridge, put some new strings on it, adjust the neck, plug it into an amp and pretend to play it for 15 minutes and then go hang it back upstairs. That's it. But, uh, anyways, we're, we're, all, we're all headed for a job keep my, museum keep my, uh, keep my skills sharp, I guess. There you go. That's it. Yeah, well, right. if it's if it's doing alternate, for me, it's going to be sitting down and doing alternate tunings and as fast yeah. as possible for two guitars. Yeah. That's the specialty right there. If you can do that, the double drop D fret low yeah. on a 1946 Roy Smex stage deluxe. And then change that to regular drop D note uh, with a capo on the first fret with only one song in between. Yeah, that's, that's the and one. He insists on using a bird of paradise capo. Oh, yeah. That don't always stay on. That's for sure. 
Yeah, I have oh, one, no, of those, one of those ones where it. it's like, well, I want to use this guitar on, on this song and then on this song. And I said, well, in the first one, the tuning is E, B, E, E, B, E. And the other one is actually some form of drop D, uh, almost an octave higher. It's like, oh, okay, sure. On the same guitar? Oh, yeah. Well, one of those tunings has to be compromised with something. Well, it's, Strings it, are going to be too... I don't know. I need to have you around to throw my belt pack into the audience so I don't listen to what's going on. I tried telling you that a long time ago. <laughs> I've only like signed up for that with Melissa Etheridge just because she would say things to me like, hey, I need the blah, blah, blah with a capo on the third fret coming right up. But, you know, she would like whisper things to me and I'd hear them and it would help me through the show. Yeah, the fun part is not having to tell anybody else who's on the stage. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What are we doing? I uh, know. Well, Rick, there you go. Yep. The bird has sounded. The bird. Is that a cardinal? That might be. <laughs> might be. We were up in Nashville last week. My daughter, she works for a management company up there. Yeah. And uh, she's still, I mean, she's still getting paid, still working, but she works from home because her office is closed. But uh, they moved into a rental house in East Nashville. And uh, me and my wife went up there and uh, made a list of all the stuff that had to be done. And I went to Home Depot with my mask on and my gloves and completely set their whole outside up. And, uh, Got them all dialed in with everything they need. So, but the whole time I was there, I didn't, I didn't call Harry, I didn't call Joe Lopez, I didn't call anybody, John Hoffman. No. I, didn't, I didn't have any time. I was busy uh, bending nails and running screws in. There you go. So, ah, man. Good one, Ricky. Yep. Give my best well, to the family. I will. Everything is good here. I'm uh, really happy that I'm doing this rehab now, finally, yeah. and feeling a lot better from it. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, when, when the time comes where we can go and occupy an arena again, that'll be a special day. Yeah. Because, you know, it's like I told Billy, at that point, the people who we've already entertained will be doing anything to come and check out what we sell and the live music will be what brings everybody back again. And that's when we know that everything is going to be under control. And uh, when sports comes back little by little, this and that different things where they have to limit the amount of people, eventually the formula will, 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 you know, come into view and, and live music will be what rises above it because people, no matter what happened in all the 40 years I've been in the business, there was only one time when I couldn't find any kind of work at all. And that was right after the Gulf War. And nobody wanted to work. Nobody wanted to travel. Nobody yeah. could go to Europe. Nobody wanted to go and travel anywhere or be in a big group. And um, 
it, it just, you know, that was the only time. Even after, like, you know, even after uh, 9-11, I was working in October. Right. And had plenty of things to do. And uh, we were traveling. But, you know, we weren't going to Europe. We weren't going. But we were traveling in the States and doing a lot of weekend shows and stuff like that. Live music will come back. It's just a matter of when people feel like they're going to be safe. And uh, yeah, if just, they can feel safe at a football game, then they can start feeling safe in an arena. Uh, you, know, and a, you know, like Garth Brooks screwed that whole thing up by doing it as a live broadcast. Yeah. It wasn't even a live show. Yeah. And they're trying to do three shows in Nashville the end of July where you, it's in the parking lot. They build this stage and the actual artists will actually be there. And they're rotating at three different places. One's at the football stadium in Nashville. One's in Kentucky. One's somewhere else. And uh, so the three artists are rotating each night. So every night there'll be a, a concert by somebody live at the – and the, each car spot, each parking spot has a 10 by 10, like, tailgating area that's cordoned off. And so they can get out of their car and pull out a chair and you know, still see the stage. So they're trying to make that work, but, you know, it's not, you know, it's $400 a car. That's a hundred bucks a piece. People just don't know what they're going to get yet. Yeah. And until that goes over really well and people like it, it's going to be a hard thing to sell. Yeah, I know. I know. But maybe we won't have to do that. Maybe we'll figure some stuff out and, we can move on because right now music business is in trouble. Oh yeah. Which means we're in trouble. And only by well, we the, thought, we thought the we grace of my, my boss's generosity, am I okay? Because yeah. otherwise I'd be, it would be like the end of the world here. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, we, we needed to come back. Yep. Um, rest well, assured that day will come. I don't know what day, but exactly. you know, it's like I mean, a survival thing. It's like when you're now. stuck in Europe for eight months <laughs> and you're sick of everybody and everything and you can't stand eating in another you know, pizza place in London <laughs> that costs $35. Anyways, well, all is good here. You guys be safe. Well, All right. Don't go anywhere you don't have to go. Wash your hands. I'm and, going uh, to don't to... eat any bats. Oh. <laughs> that was Wayne Williams's the most the most important thing you can do to stop the spread of COVID nineteen is not eat bats. <laughs> I'm so, telling you. Oh yep. man. Thanks a lot, Ricky. All right, buddy. I will talk to you soon. All right, my friend. Okay. You be safe. Change the strings on that telly over there. Oh, yeah. I sure could use it. <laughs>